Welcome to the Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, this week your Banker Midweek editors are Liz Lumley and John Everington, who covers the Middle East and Africa for us here at the Banker. Hello, John, how are you? Hello, Liz, I'm very well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, you know, we're going to be talking, since John is on the on the podcast today, we're going to be talking about the Middle East, specifically Saudi Arabia, but that's a, that's a bit later on, uh, as we discuss uh, stories that are live on the Banker site and stories that will influence future banking stories. So... Um, to quote one of our contributors this week, uh, the banking saga continues. I know we're kind of moving a little bit away from the trials and tribulations of Silicon Valley Bank, but of course we still have to talk about what's going on with Credit Suisse. So we've got a story on our website today from our European editor, Anita Hauser, saying, let's start uh, Credit Suisse. How did we get here? And this is taking data from the banker database to look at the long history of Credit Suisse. So the fa- the flash sale of Credit Suisse and UBS may have come as no surprise to many who, despite the bank's strong capital levels, commonly equity tier one capital ratio of 14%, often mentioned the bank in the same breath as the words doomed and troubled. Now, this is, of course, as you mentioned, as we mentioned before, the banking saga continues, John. But it's quite interesting when um, the banker went to uh, Cybos Swift's uh, conference last October. There was uh, a lot of commentary about the state of European banks, and specifically Credit Suisse was mentioned often. And I had a few people uh, talk to me with a glass of wine in hand. Mm-hmm. We give the bank six months, mm-hmm. and I'm thinking October, November. December. That's they were pretty accurate. Yeah. Pretty accurate. <laughs> I mean, it was uh, it sort of COVID gave them, I think, a reprieve um, a little bit about um, uh, where it was going. Um, and it was it's it's downfall, even though this is it happened amidst what was going on in the U.S. with Silicon Valley Bank and the other banks. This was kind of a long a long time coming. Indeed. Yeah. So, so are you on the, the contagion? We're in another banking crisis camp or do you think this is a one off? Well, it's a bit of a difficult one. I mean, my view has changed on this a little bit over the over the last couple of weeks, really. So um, I think sort of when we first sort of like kind of when Silicon Valley Bank sort of kind of blew up, we thought, OK, right, that specific stuff kind of particularly to that bank and that sort of like kind of subsector within the US. And I mean, particularly when it was kind of rescued um, the UK arm was rescued very quickly. And I thought, OK, they've done their job well. We've kind of cut off that contagion at this point. And so, but then it started, kept on rumbling on, and then you had the Credit Suisse stuff, um, mm. which um, sort of kind of blew up in the middle of the month, and um, it just wouldn't die down. And I mean, <laughs> Saudi Arabia had its own part to play in that, which we'll get to later. We will get to. Yeah, I know. Before we get to Saudi Arabia, I wanted to talk about bonds. Um, you know, bonds played a factor in, in Silicon Valley Bank, and it played a factor in uh, Credit Suisse. And I guess the, the bond market is is rather turbulent right at the moment. But specifically, we've got another story um, on our site from a contributor, Tim Skeet, um, looking at uh, AT1 bonds, which face an uncertain future. For those of you who don't know, Tier 1 Capital, or AT1 debt, was introduced after the 2008 global financial crisis to prevent future bank failures while keeping taxpayers off the hook for capital injections. Financial regulators created a new class of securities that would absorb bank losses and shore up capital ratios without tapping public funding. That all sounds very good. But according to Tim, 
the A1s, with their inherent contradictions and embedded compromises, faced their first real trial in Zurich, and it didn't have a very good trial. Indeed, not, <laughs> no, that's right. And everybody's had to go back to the sort of to the fine print that often we kind of tend yes. to skip over a little bit and say, okay, right, this thing that I bought, <laughs> what's, the, what's the sort of regulation here in my particular jurisdiction? Never mind what's happened in Switzerland, but I mean, what's going on in other parts of the world for people mm. of ho- holders of those bonds? Yeah, no, I agree. I was going to say the, the fine print, read the fine print on everything, people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> going forward. Just put that extra 20 minutes of, into your day for that fine print. So. <laughs> if so, you can watch an old episode of South Park to find out why. Um, so we're going to move on to your neck of the woods, John. We're looking at Saudi Arabia, and you just came back um, from Saudi Arabia. But this is all over the news right at the moment. Um, it's not on the banker's site uh, yet, but I'm sure we'll be commenting on it. The Saudi National Bank chair has resigned in the wake of Credit Suisse loss. So, John, do you want to talk us through this? That's right. So, I mean, it's not that often that Saudi banking conferences kind of hit the international headlines. So, um, as you said, I was in Riyadh um, just a couple of weeks back now and uh, for this very big financial services conference. And so um, Amar al-Khadiri, who was the chairman of Saudi National Bank at the time, was, was one of the sort of the key speakers up there on, 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 the, pa- on the podium. Um, and he gave this now infamous interview uh, to Bloomberg when they sort of asked about support levels for Credit Suisse because, of course, Saudi National Bank made an investment, a $1.5 billion investment approximately, into Credit Suisse um, towards the end of last year. And they sort of they asked, OK, are you concerned about Credit Suisse? Will you be providing more support? Will you be doing more investments into the bank? And he used the now infamous two words, absolutely not. And the market didn't respond too well to those two words. Um, so, and I mean, it was interesting to see some of the sort of the shell-shocked um, PR guys at the conference just seeing, just slightly ashen-faced, sort of like kind of when they saw what those comments had did. I think one has to sort of like step back a little bit and just like kind of put this into context. Um, I mean, again, the comments were made the day after um, Credit Suisse's disastrous sort of kind of end of year results, where a number of kind of red flags were raised and a number of warning signs. And so the market was in a very, very kind of febrile state anyway. Mm. And then, of course, you had Silicon Valley Bank um, going on in the background as well. I think what I think 2022 was the worst year for Credit Suisse outside of the crash. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So and so. The market was just kind of waiting for that sort of that panic signal, that sort of big sell signal to come after that. And I think it would have come sort of sooner rather than later, whether he made his comments or not. But it just so happened he made those comments, which were basically just reiterating SNB's strategy within um, Credit Suisse. They basically said... We don't want. They never wanted to go beyond the ten percent sort of shareholding. Um, they had a sort of um, a nine point. I think it was nine point nine or nine point eight. They didn't want to go beyond that ten percent stake because that would have meant additional regulatory um, hurdles, that, which they just weren't prepared to go down and to, to to go over, as it were. So I think so. He was kind of basically sort of expressing the sort of the policy, as it were, as as it as it stood. I think it was just the way that he did it and the environment into which he did it, which kind of sparked the panic. And I think talking to sort of bankers in the region, it seems as if just that kind of those comments, the absolutely not comments, they sort of they have been reverberating a, a little bit. I mean, the poor chap kind of just didn't choose his words particularly well, you could argue. And so therefore, he's now stepped down um, largely as a result of that. Mm. I mean, it's interesting outside of the, the context of specifically Saudi Arabia. It's interesting what's going on right at the moment. M- market observers are always looking at 
um, things that artificially move the market, you know, which is you know, that's why there's a lot of regulations around information um, messages put out by public companies, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to see, you know, the the, the Saudi uh, bank chair might have been just talking policy, but he's in a position of uh, influence, mm -hmm. and that just those words. We're in, we're in this new world now where words travel very fast, and when you say them to Bloomberg, they're all around the world and uh, move, move the market in, in interesting ways. Definitely, yeah. And I think just the way that something is phrased, the way that the information is conveyed, I mean, we as journalists really should know this by now, <laughs> but it just makes such a difference. And again, having having something like absolutely not, I mean, just sort of ringing out, that's sort of something that kind of people clasp onto. Whereas if you kind of just smooth your language a little bit, and just say, as we've said before, our position at the moment is to sort of have this particular. According thing. to the fine print. <laughs> Correct. Yes, and I mean, and I mean, I mean, the sort of um, poor old Mr. Al Qadiri. He did go back um, in the sort of in the in in subsequent days, just really re reiterating his support for Credit Suisse mm. and saying that I mean, there would be sort of there would be money available and such, and they and they would continue to support the bank. Sadly, by that point. Um, so the, the damage had been done. I think, if you don't mind, it'd be interesting to just sort of talk a little bit about um, Saudi National Bank's kind of where they're coming from. Saudi National Bank was formed um, as a super bank within Saudi Arabia from the merger of National Commercial Bank and uh, Samba Financial Group. It was originally announced in 2020, in 2020 and then it was completed finally in, in 2022. And this created um, the largest bank in the region in terms of tier one capital, which is the way that we um, measure it by the top 1,000 um, in our rankings, um, the third largest um, in the region behind Qatar National Bank and first Abu Dhabi Bank. And it really has been kind of created as this sort of this national champion bank. Um, its main shareholder is the Public Investment Fund, which is Saudi Arabia's all-powerful sovereign wealth fund, which is actually um, the driving force behind a lot of the privatization and a lot of the economic transformation efforts which are happening in um, in Saudi Arabia at this time. So it's not just another bank, um, SNB. It's really kind of, it's a bank which is kind of carrying out what is seen as kind of you could say is Saudi sort of economic policy, Saudi sort of kind of Saudi privatization policy and investment policy overseas. And when you have those comments which are kind of made in that context and sort of having the impact they um, they did, that sort of put his position under pressure once again. Mm. No, it's it's it, 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 interesting interesting uh, development. But yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you talked us through that that context of it. But um, now I want to talk a little bit about crypto. I know, it's the law. So, you know, during the ongoing banking saga that we are all are in at the moment, there was a, a surge in, in crypto as a lot of people moved their money uh, specifically away from U.S. dollars. Um, so a lot of people in the crypto community pointed to this as a resurgent of the asset class after the downturn in 2022, which a lot of people have called a crypto winter. But there's a lot of stuff going on right at the moment. Um, Bitcoin is back down. There's a um, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission is uh, suing, let me get this right so uh, we can read this here, is uh, uh, XRP. Um, it, be, it accuses it of being an unregistered security in a court case as it's expected to be completed soon. XRP token surged 8% over the past 24 hours to buck a market-wide trend decline following a U.S. Uh, Commodities Futures Trading Commission filing against prominent crypto exchange Beyonce. 
Beyonce. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Beyonce? Beyonce. Beyonce. I know. I'm really bad. Um, Bitcoin uh, fell to $27,000, losing local support level uh, while it briefly dropped under uh, $1,700 before recovering. So Bitcoin's going up and down. Um, it's uh, it's it, it was a, a place where people put their money for a bit during the crisis, but it's it's now um, having a lot of issues, especially in the U.S. And I have to say, this is what I'm going to say, because <laughs> I'm not anti-crypto. I'm commenting on this one. Um, I'm a, I like to say I'm on the crypto fence. Um, this is, I think, is an asset class. Um, but we're going to get into it being used as payments very soon when we go back to Africa. Um, but but my, more often than not, it's an asset class. And if you want to invest your money in that asset class, you're an adult. You're perfectly able to do that. But don't class it as anything else. I think the court case in the U.S. has a lot of legs. And it'll be very interesting to see how that um, how that uh, farms out. And that doesn't mean I'm anti-crypto. I'm just not super pro-crypto, especially when there is this large portion of that community that I think preys on people who they shouldn't. But uh, I don't know if you have any, any more views on that before we talk about Africa and crypto. I started my career in telecoms, and um, as a telecoms journalist, you were kind of inflicted um, by sort of so many kind of different, like kind of killer apps and slight yes. innovations. Um, <laughs> it's going to destroy us all. I know. And I mean, and again, sort of, there was a sort of a wonderful headline from the satirical um newspaper the daily mash a few years back i think it was the sort of the launch of an ipad or something like that and the sort of the headline was shiny thing make it all better <laughs> which has always stuck with me it's like okay this shiny bit of technology is going to change our life it's going to make everything better a bright new future um is going to sort of like come about because of this new shiny thing and i mean the, sh the shiny thing is the, is the best thing i think that's the cynical side of things but then again when you look at sort of i mean coming back to telecoms, when you actually saw what it was doing on the ground. Um, and I mean, particularly in my patch that I was covering in Africa and the Middle East at the time, you think, actually, you know what, this is changing things. This is this is transformative. I think it's just a, a question of kind of what those use cases are. It's like kind of, OK, the technology may be good in itself and may be interesting in itself. But I mean, what is it used for? I mean, what's I know. What are my relatives kind of like who don't who aren't particularly tech savvy? Are they going to use it? Is there a particular use case for them, or is this just kind of something that just keeps on batting about? It's like kind of amongst the tech uh, amongst the tech community, basically. I mean, yeah. One one of one of my issues is that I mean, specifically Bitcoin um, is is really difficult to use as a payment method. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's 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 just it's just not it's kind of doesn't it's not well suited for that, even though it's sort of burst on the steam over 10 years ago as a payment method. Saying that, this is a story that caught my eye today. Um, I think it was in CNBC. Uh, Bitcoin po poised to blow up Africa's 86 billion banking system. This is a story called uh, The Lightning Network Slashes the Cost of Bitcoin Transactions to Virtually Zero and Enables Nearly Instantaneous Cash Payments Around the Planet. This so-called Layer 2 technology is built on top of Bitcoin's main chain. Um, this was a CNBC spoke to entrepreneurs in Nigeria and South Africa who have integrated the Lightning Network into mobile money. And we all know Africa is kind of the ground zero for mobile money. Mm -hmm. um, is this it? Is this finally it? We can use Bitcoin for payments <laughs> and go to Africa. I think, um, I think again, once again, we just need to say, okay, 
let's let's all slow down a little bit. It's like, okay, I mean, it's a sort of it's an interesting sort of kind of piece of technology news um, with a lightning aspect. Um, is that going to impact things? I'm I'm sure it will. I think it's very interesting sort of to talk about like kind of once again you talk about the use cases um, for crypto. I mean, and for us here in the UK in terms of moving money about and paying for things, we've got faster payments, we've got a very kind of like developed payments network, which I know that you can talk for hours on, it's like kind of the history of that. So, and I mean, okay, you think, okay, moving money around, making payments, fairly straightforward for us, no need for crypto or something like this. Within Africa, it's been very, very interesting to see actually some of the use cases emerging, which are actually in many ways kind of close to the sort of like the more utopian claims that sort of, some in the crypto community have made over the pa- in in the past. So first of all, kind of the sort of the store of value argument isn't made so much kind of um, these days as much given the sort of the massive swings that we've seen in in cryptocurrency values and particularly the sort of the falls that we saw in 2022. But then if you look at Africa and if you look at the sort of the, the constant devaluation of so many currencies, so many national currencies on the continent, against that backdrop, you kind of think, okay, you know what? Well, Bitcoin's like kind of is going up and down, but then again, so is my national currency. And in some ways, if you're kind of investing into something like a stable coin, which kind of is in theory linked to the dollar and most of the time is, despite kind of recent exceptions, you think, you know what? That's maybe not the maybe that's not the worst investment I can be making at this point. So you are you are starting to see that. And in terms of the payments as well, it's not so much kind of for domestic payments, which um which kind of we're seeing crypto being used for. I think there is, there is a little bit of it, but not too much. What we're seeing more of is it being used for international payments and international remittances. It's important to note within Africa that quite often you don't have the sort of the currency marketplace that you do in sort of in other regions. So say if you're paying for something in Ghana and Cedis, for example, or sorry, if you're in Ghana and if you're paying somebody in China for some goods, you might have to kind of um, go through 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 the dollar first of all sort of convert from sorry from cd into dollar and then dollar into chinese currency and so a number of kind of people are finding you know what we can actually just bypass that that hurdle and just do it via either a stablecoin transaction or a um, or a bitcoin transaction so that's one use case and then in addition to that you have the remittances in in that same field mobile money has had an explosive impact within africa um as you were just saying in the past 15, 15 or so years, but it still costs more to remit $200 to sub-Saharan Africa from outside um, than, en- than to any other um, region in the world, according to World Bank figures. You still have very, very high transaction fees. You're seeing an increasing kind of growth in like kind of companies which are actually kind of offering you to sort of to be able to do those transactions using kind of a stable coin solution or a sort of a cryptocurrency solution where the fees are much, much lower. So you definitely see those use cases there. So it's it's been very interesting to see um in in, in the past few years. It does have to be said that a lot of people have been getting into to Bitcoin for the speculative reasons that we've seen in other parts, just chasing the returns that we saw in 2021 before the 2022 crash. But the other use cases are there, and they're very, very interesting. Mm. No, I mean, if it is going down that road of reducing fees specifically for for, for remittances and making an impact on ordinary people's lives, yeah, we'll see. It's one to watch. So I've got uh, two more stories, which is a bit of a, a Liz indulgence. I do apologize for this. So this is this is a story that's up. Uh, this is the latest uh, Tech Vision uh, column, which is uh, titled, A 350-Year-Old Bank Knows Its Place in the Digital World. So I sat down and I interviewed Chris Loke, who is uh, head of technology at 
Seahorse uh, Bank, which is one of the oldest banks in the UK and one of the oldest banks in the world. It's owned by 12 generations of the same family. And they're a private bank uh, that uh, caters to high net worth individuals. So why am I commenting on this? And this is why I thought it was quite interesting because I'm quite fascinated with how structure and frameworks change theories and ideas and methodologies. So he said, uh, Chris said, culturally, we're a family business. The focus is on the long term, and we're not a slave to quarterly earnings numbers and annual results. As a technologist, you're constantly being asked to compromise at every other business because you need to hit your quarterly numbers, whereas here, you're not asked to compromise. You're asked to do the right thing for customers day in, day out, and that's a much more engaging way of working. So outside of this being sort of an ad for, for Horse Bank, if you're a high net worth individual, um, I've talked a lot uh, to people, especially in the startup world, about and and people in the banking world. You know, bringing agile methodologies into a, a large bank, bringing uh, startup mindsets in, and how and and people get a bit shocked at how that structure changes because you've changed the environment. You know, whenever you know, if if any of you have ever you know worked at a small company and then worked for a very large company, the pace of change is is very different. So I. I find it interesting to to hear this talk about when, you know, this the way he looks at developing products for customers is changed simply because they're a private family business instead of this, you know, larger big institutional bank. So, one one to think about us uh, us our audiences that structure can sometimes change uh, how we how we view things. So <laughs> but one more, I'm going to leave it at this. Unless you want to comment on that on innovation structure. No, no, it sounds like a very interesting article. So we started off uh, the Banker Midweek talking about how the banking saga is continuing. And while all this drama was going on in the U.S. and in Europe with bank collapses, it happened. Uh, it was ISO 2022 Coexistence Day. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> For all of you who are as excited about uh, new possibilities for cross-border payments. Uh, the swift migration to ISO 2022 happened on March 20th, so you, we will be coexisting with MT messages and ISO messages throughout till November 2025. So congratulations, Coexistence Day. May we work March forward to uh, better cross-border payments for everyone. Wonderful. John, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for listening to The Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more.